hello and welcome to Misbehave, the podcast where we explore human behavior in a business context. Season two of Misbehave is all about uncovering behavioral patterns which create success in life and business. We're joined by highly driven, accomplished individuals to assess their behavioral patterns and dive into how behaviors have influenced their journey. This episode features Joanna Feely, owner and MD of global future trends agency, Trend Bible. In this episode, we explore Joe's transition from freelancer to CEO, what trend forecasting is, and how key principles can be applied in business. We talk about Joe's six-week summer hiatus, the secrets to a highly productive team, and the belief that you can become a good manager even if you're not naturally a people person. So welcome, Joe, to the podcast. We are excited to have you with us. Before we dive into your journey, do you want to just explain to the listeners what trend forecasting is? Because I bet you get that question all the time and there's probably people on here who have never encountered it. Yes, yeah, of course. Trend forecasting, it's a whole industry, really, and it sits behind the design industry. And for every product that gets designed, every marketing message that goes live, there is a whole team of people behind those decisions and they have to make those decisions often years in advance. So some of my customers are global brands and retailers. They might be producing a a product that's a toy for a child and that needs to be on a shelf in about two years time. So they have to understand something of what life will be like for their audience in two years time. And the best way to find that information out is through trend forecasting. Trend forecasting is about an $80 billion business and it it's very secretive. It's very low key. You won't meet many people that are trend forecasters. Designers certainly don't kind of openly talk about where they get their trend inspiration from. But there is an entire industry of trend forecasters that work all year round on figuring out you know, at the moment we're working on Christmas 2026, I think. So wow. we're thinking really far ahead about how will we feel, what kind of emotions are going to be triggered by consumers, what kind of political, financial events might happen, and just trying to kind of pave the journey between now and then to figure out, you know, what, what product's going to go on the shelf at that time. Do you ever feel like it's almost like one of those thankless tasks that because this is almost this unknown thing that happens behind bringing products to a shelf what how does that feel for you guys at the other end of it because obviously sometimes I'm assuming people just don't know that your team have been involved in that or you've been involved in part of that prediction process that's brought that product to life yes and obviously we sign NDAs so we can't openly talk about some of the things we've been involved in even though some of them are really exciting and if I told you about them now you'd recognize them all in the world around us but I suppose for us, the the thing we focus on most is the designers and the decision makers inside the businesses that we work with. You know, they're making multi-million, sometimes multi-billion dollar decisions on what to produce and when and how much to produce. And the pressure is really on with them. You know, if they don't get the trends right, their card is marked and that can kill somebody's career, actually. It's that serious if you get a decision like that wrong at a very senior level. So we... For all it can seem kind of fun and some of the products and and clients that we work with are really fun and the projects themselves are very engaging, very creative. We never lose sight of the fact that at the end of the day, we put the trends, even if it's a colour forecast, even if we're telling a company, you need to move from this paint colour to this paint colour in 2026, then we will have to help them figure out how ready the customer is for that colour and whether 20 customers will be ready for that or 5 million customers will be ready for that. So there's a a huge pressure to produce the right amount and especially now 
that you know there is a pressure on brands and retailers to be more environmentally conscious so they can't overproduce it's not just about meeting the market where it's at and producing enough to cater for demand it's not overproducing to the point that you're going to be in some sort of landfill conversation or you're going to have to get rid of you know millions of gallons of paint if it doesn't sell so there's a kind of seriousness with that as well. So I suppose in that respect, yes, we're behind the scenes and sometimes that's quite nice. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And without giving away any trade secrets, can you give us a flavour? Because I'm sat here thinking, how do you do that? Like, how do you figure out what people are going to want for Christmas 2026? So can you give us any insight into that? Yeah, I mean, one of the best things we do is we host trend panels, and I think we have about eight or ten trend panels a year now, and we'll focus on different events. So for Christmas, for example, 2026, we'll just have a Christmas trend panel. And at that panel, we'll invite people who work in the world of Christmas, 365 days a year. They know it inside out. They might be illustrators. They might work in the greetings card industry, all sorts of different specialists. And we we build a sort of social and cultural picture, but then we build a, a visual picture as well with the sort of motifs. And you tend to think for Christmas, is it not all Christmas trees and Santa Claus's face? You tend to think there's a set of motifs you could just stick on a bauble or, you know, whatever it might be. But actually, that's not really how Christmas works. And if you go into any store and look at the Christmas decorations, you'll see that there's a different theme and a different flavour. And that ladders up usually to a bigger social and cultural theme. And if we are experiencing sort of collective hard times socially, so, you know, if there's a, a, a pandemic or if there's some sort of financial crash, you can see that that would be reflected in a Christmas collection that actually would be probably more exuberant than it typically would be because Christmas becomes a celebration that people, people will spend their money on a Christmas celebration, whereas they might cancel a holiday. So those sort of family moments to be together will become a big celebration. So the trend panels really are the, the linchpin for uncovering what it is that will impact the customer at that time. And we get to meet the most amazing people. We dial people in from all over the world to hear about what is Christmas like in Australia. And obviously not just Christmas, all sorts of different cultural, religious yeah. celebrations so that we can find out what's changing, what's shifting, what sort of mood do we need to be tuned into in order that we can help our customers put together a collection or a marketing story that's really going to connect with that audience where they are in two years' time. It's amazing, isn't it? It's so, like, complex when you think about, yeah. like, doing that. But also the you really got to have conviction to make those predictions and put those forward because there is a lot riding on it. I mean, obviously, this podcast has got people's behaviours, human behaviours threaded through it. And I'm imagining that plays a big part in making the forecast, like how our behaviour is shifting, what is impacting people's behaviours, and then ultimately their consumer choices. Tell us a little bit about what, maybe something that people don't know about your journey, what's been significant in your journey, because you, you've been in business a little while now, we might say. I think there's probably, I think as time goes on, I'm realising there's a, a thread, some sort of thread around intuition. There's like a really strong thread and whether that's my own personal career choices. I started out in fashion design and found out about the trend forecasting industry sort of later on once I'd entered the jobs market as a fashion designer. And I think there's definitely something there about, you know, you need a, you need strong intuition as a trend forecaster. You need to be able to make those decisions, as you say, about if we've got five options, which one is mm -hmm. the most important, which one's the most significant and which one's the most lucrative for the client. So 
there's intuition. I don't take that word lightly because it's not just how you feel. It's built on experience as well. Yeah. So you, you learn along the way, really, you know, that gut feel that people often talk about. Yeah. So in my personal career choices, intuition has been massively important. And also in my career, it has. And I think the times when I can tell I've gone off path is when I have had that gut feel and not listened to it. I think it's just a thread that's probably run all the way through. I'm interested to pick up on the first part of that piece that Sarah said there around the consumer behaviour element and how much, I guess, how you look at that. Does that become part of, I'm guessing that becomes part of those trend panels and actually there is a a big piece of that conversation that's around consumer behaviour. Yes, totally. When you first start forecasting trends, you can usually forecast about a year ahead and it's a real struggle. I now know that, you know, I spent two years training my staff from graduates to be able to forecast from one year to two years ahead. So there are certain things you need to pay attention to that will get you able to predict further ahead. And I think that looking at consumer behaviour, when I first set out in forecasting, I could almost see what I might want in a year's time. And what I learned over the years was it's not always about what I want, although that might be valuable for a, a brand that has a customer that might be like me. So I've, I've had to diversify the amount of viewpoints that come into the business. And we've really massively focused on that. I learned quite early on that it couldn't just be me, it couldn't just be my opinion. Mm-hmm. And when I was trend forecasting for... A, I worked for Tesco, the supermarket, for a few years before I set up on my own. And, you know, the questions you get asked as soon as you say, this is the trend forecast, this is what life's going to be like in two years' time, people say, well, who says? How do you know that? How do you know that's the way that people will feel? And so challenge helps build the sort of integrity into the trend forecast and helps it be more grounded and more solid and helps you go away and find more evidence it's not the case that you can create a forecast and you can absolutely 100% guarantee that's going to happen. But what you can do is you can paint a picture of a future landscape and then you can think deeply about the brand and the client that needs to operate in that space and make sure that they are really supremely positioned to operate there. Mm. I suppose that's the same as if you think about our listeners will be running a business and often looking to connect with their market, their target audience, their, their persona, looking at how they can connect either a product or service with those. And, you know, it's, it's a marketing challenge, isn't it, often? Have you got any sort of advice for business owners around being able to predict ahead and be able to connect with their persona or their, their target audience? Yeah, I mean, anybody that sets out to produce something or start their own company will be doing a bit of trend forecasting, whether they call it that or not, they will. You know, every company will be sitting down to create, well, most of them will, a one-year plan or a two-year plan or a five-year plan. And within that, you are thinking about, well, what will my customer be like by then? How will they have grown if they're two or three years older than they are now? What will that look like? How will their lives change? So everybody, every business owner is doing some trend forecasting. And I think you've got to take some comfort in the fact that you'll be getting the very basics in there anyway. You've got to stay close to your customer. Change can happen overnight and I think once you get to a a large size business and I think our smallest customer is probably like a 10 million pound turnover business I would say now because you need to be a certain size to be able to take that level of information into a business and actually do something with it and I think that at that point you need to be able to see where your customer is where they're headed and 
really map out the entire lifestyle shift, but you also need to pay attention to everything outside of your sector. So if you make toothbrushes for a living, you might know everything there is to know about your toothbrush, your competitor's toothbrushes. You might know a bit about toothpaste. But actually, do you know anything about the way that the world of personal hygiene is moving or the way that bathroom design is moving or the way that families are living together or cohabiting? You know, those are the kind of things when you're a really big brand, the change comes from left and right. It doesn't necessarily come from inside your industry. And I think that's one of the biggest risk factors we see. A large corporate brand, I mean, you, you, you do see it, you know, some of these really big retailers and brands disappear and and you say why you know why did that happen what kind of trends were they looking at and they'll say well we knew our industry inside out you know we knew the rest of the world of the value retail space well actually they didn't see somebody move in from another sector Mm. that's where we come in because we will paint the full picture beyond what a brand even if they have an internal trend insight team they will pretty much I can pretty much guarantee they'd be focused on only what competitors are doing and only the change that's going to happen in their particular field it's a classic inside it's like well you can't see the wood for the cheese because you're inside it's a it's the benefits often of bringing suppliers or experts into the business because they don't have that internal perception they don't have that subconscious bias so I think like at any level it's important to have that different perspective come into the business and look or for you to be conscious of doing that I mean even if you think of some of the sort of multi-billion dollar brands that we work with you tend to think well they've got a a trend team and an insight team in there so maybe that makes up about 30 people maybe more sometimes and so you think surely they would be the kind of company if anybody could do without an external trend agency they would be the kind of company that would not buy external trend services but they make up the biggest chunk of our customers they they buy in a lot of expertise not just from us but from competitors as well because they want to be able to braille across a broad range of influences and take a temperature of what's happening and that's the best way to do that even if you have an internal team they understand that that's a blind spot because there's so much influence that goes into that team even if you try and avoid it you know you're influencing them in every board meeting or every senior message that comes down into that insight team will shape in some way oh it's not okay to look down this route or look at that route we've had clients before who've asked us to eliminate certain political angles from our forecasts which we refused to do because we felt that it wasn't the truth and so that can be really challenging sometimes where you're asked as an external person to come in and tell the truth about something and you know trends aren't always a good news story sometimes you're telling a client about the fact that the product they've been producing for the past 50 years is we don't see a future for it in as short a term as five years time and they're going to have to elevate out of that space so it's not always delivering good news and that has to be delivered obviously with some sensitivity and sometimes it's received with skepticism and sometimes it's received with some level of gratitude But the ones that ignore it, you can tell straight away there's not an openness there to think about the world outside of the way they would like things to go. And I think that's fascinating because we definitely experience that. I think we're massive advocates, even in, in our business, but in addition with clients around... It's great to build out your expertise internally. Like We'll see businesses where they've almost... From what we do, they've covered every element of the people spectrum. They've got a people manager, they've got a recruitment manager, they've got someone who looks at engagement. And while it's nice to have those specialisms, they are missing something if they don't get some external insight. Because there is internal political pressures. If you know that the MD doesn't like a certain thing and you're employed by that business, the likelihood is you will remove that from your narrative. Whereas 
an external consultant doesn't need to worry that much about that. Ultimately, you're not managed by that person. And like you say, there's a responsibility there to be able to present the truth. So I think that's interesting because it comes, I think, in any consultancy business, but in particular in, in what you guys do around, listen, we we will predict what's out there. It might not be what you want to do. Yeah, sometimes people don't like what's in the forecast. We produce most of our forecasting work is, is bespoke to each client that works with us, but we do have some kind of off-the-shelf global forecasts. And within those, we have to eliminate some of the nuances that, you know, there might be something massive happening in the US or the UK, but actually we can't really lean on that too much because we have to eliminate regional nuances to make it truly global. And sometimes we do get customers phone us up and say, we've, you know, paid for this forecast and we don't like it. You know, it, it doesn't tell us what we wanted it to say. And we have to explain to them that this is the truth. We've validated it with external panel members and we take them through all the many, many different methodologies that we use to draw those conclusions. We don't just throw these things out into the world and say, good luck. You know, they're really carefully thought through. We go through every piece of language. We go through every image to make sure there's a, a diversity of the, the people that you see on the pages if it's a visual report we take such care to make sure they're extremely well thought out that's not to say we don't ever make a mistake you know but we we think really carefully about what we do and so when a client phones us and it's it is rare but it does happen they'll phone up and say we can't see anything for us here generally that's a good start point for a bigger conversation around so if this is not for you where are you headed what is it that you think that you're trying to achieve and quite often it's just that there is not that much change in their business and it's just moving too fast for them and they don't like the pace of change and it's too far away from where they currently feel they are. And that's probably their behavioural makeup, isn't it? It's, you know, you've got those businesses where they probably, in our language, sit more on that sort of sameness to evolution standpoint. I'm interested to talk a little bit because kind of what we're floating around a little bit is probably some of those businesses, if they have people in those teams that have very similar behavioural mixes, we know that their own behavioural patterns will influence potentially the trends that they're seeing, how they explore them, how they present them. And I know you've done a lot of work with your team on making sure that the people that you've got doing that for you are diversified from a behavioural standpoint and think differently. Can you talk us through a little bit about how you've done that? Yeah, I mean, I've got you guys to credit for a lot of that, really, because, you know, I think, I mean, my least favourite part of running a business was managing people. I have got some lovely team members, as you know, but I really struggled with understanding how to get that tone right. I didn't feel massively comfortable about sort of being the boss and sitting in that position for a lot of years. And that eventually came back to bite me when I think we got to about 12 people. I think you can probably get to about 10 people operating in a certain way and hiring people that are similar to you and feeling like when you interview somebody, you can see something in them that's reflective of what you were like. And I think if you'd looked at our business at 12 people, I'd either hired people that were plugging gaps that I didn't have from a skills perspective, but I didn't think at all about behaviours. Or I was hiring people just like me because that's what I thought, that's what I knew as a trend forecaster. Well, if I can do it and I can see that they're similar to me, then I can probably train them. That got me so far, got me to about 12 people. And then beyond 12 people, there started to be rumbles and people asking, why are you running the business in this way? Why don't you do it this way? And why can't we have it like this? And why aren't you thinking about these things? And the pressure to do that, having had no kind of people management skills. And bearing in mind when I set out on my 
what, what's turned out to be a business journey. I only ever intended to be a freelancer working on my own in my spare bedroom, listening to the radio all day. That was my goal. It wasn't to work with people. In fact, it was to remove myself from society. <laughs> and that we was my... pattern that lines yeah, up with. Yeah, recluse. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I would have been a brilliant recluse. And, but, I, you know, I, I got to the stage where I had too much work on the table for one person and I thought, I don't really want to leave that there because you, you work... I mean, I worked for eight months on pitching to customers and didn't get any work when I first set up. So that really hits hard. And so then you don't want to leave any work on the table because you're aware that when the dry times come, you know, it's really hard to go after a new business. So I kept getting more work. That meant that I had to hire people. And I remember really agonising over hiring my first person and spoke to loads of other business owners who'd hired people. And they all said, you just need to hire your first person. It's not the last person that you'll hire. Just get over it and, and push on. And I just, I didn't believe that. I thought I'd only ever hire one person. I had no, for all I'm a trend forecaster and work in the future, I had no foresight that I'd grow it into a company. Yeah. It just wasn't the plan. So, yeah, from that perspective, at that 12-person point, I had to really rethink. And I think that's probably the point that I got in touch with you guys and said, I think something's happening here. We're not aligned as a group of people. We're not all working in the same direction. I feel like people are pulling against me. And I feel like I know kind of where I want to take it, but I don't feel like everyone's on board. And so we did a group session on values. And actually, that just righted the ship so much. Not to say that everything just was rosy all of a sudden, because it made me realise that certain people weren't going to be able to go on the journey with us because we weren't aligned. Yeah, They weren't aligned with where I really needed us to go. So that was a real pivotal moment of sort of stepping into the power that I had as as the owner of the company. And I remember speaking to a mentor at the time and she said, you know, it's your business. You shape it how you would like it to be. And that's the, the framework that you then use to pull people into the business. And if people like it, they will come to you. And that's exactly what's happened. We're sort of 24, 25 people now. And it's interesting looking at your patterns, Joel. Like you're motivated by having... You know, across two actually affiliation which is more the people piece and then also that power piece which is more around like being able to have control being able to lead how difficult was it for you when you started to employ people handing over and delegating and handing over some of that control and and power really within the business because obviously when you're the only person or even when you've only got a few people you still have it what was the point where you really had to sort of make that shift, make that change? I think I actually probably made it early on, but I didn't make it in the full spectrum. So obviously when you're running your own business and it's only you, you do everything. You do the accounts, you do every single thing. So I knew quite early on, I remember reading something that said, you know, play to your strengths, only do the things that only you can do. So I delegated out, you know, I had an accountant really early on. I wasn't doing my own tax returns. I didn't waste my time doing stuff that I was going to be really rubbish at. Mm -hmm. So in that respect, I cleared the decks of anything that I knew I couldn't do. And I think that was a good move for me. The trend forecasting piece, however, that was the bit that that was part of my identity was this is what I do. This is what I've trained as. This is the job that I love. And so there was always that kind of tension between being a trend forecaster and running a business. And I think probably later on, probably around that 12 person mark again, that started to sort of become a stage where I was thinking, well, Am I part of the team that delivers the client work or am I running the business? And for a while you have to do both. And then just sort of pre-pandemic, I would say probably 2018, 2019, I got to the stage where I realised that I could run the business and 
I love all the strategy stuff. You know, that just fits with my trend forecaster brain anyway. And so I was quite happy to not be delivering client work, not be doing the trend forecasting anymore. And I had a team at that point, you know, a team of trend forecasters, some of whom have been with me for 10 years. So I had a lot of trust in them. I'd help train them. They had really good experience, great skills. So it wasn't actually as difficult as you might think it would have been. But certainly I cleared the decks of all the stuff that was definitely not my skill set early on. And the trend forecasting, now my role is more about putting coaching sessions in with the team, training them, making sure that the thinking, you know, 20 years worth of thinking about trend forecasting is being shared with the team because it's easy to sometimes forget that that's the case and just tell them to go off and read other people's books and speak to each other and network broadly. But actually, I can see now I've got a lot of experience to share back with them. And that that transition, I think that's really interesting because when we start working often with business owners or directors you know they're delegating and they almost think that they're good at delegating because they're delegating the stuff that actually they recognize that they're not that good at and actually that bit's the easy bit the, the hard bit is more around that transition into that true CEO role and obviously we talk a lot about that on our retreats which obviously I know you came on the last one talk to us a little bit about that because that initial delegation piece, but then what that felt like to really elevate into the CEO role where you're not doing any delivery and maybe some of the pivotal hires that you made to enable you to do that. Yeah, I mean, it's it's so interesting looking back at that now because I almost, aside from the pandemic where I had to step right back into a delivery role and furloughed everybody except one person and I had to get back into it and sort of uh, dust off the old trend forecasting manuals and remember <laughs> how to do every single thing, including some of the technology that I just hadn't hadn't created any documents for two or three years at that point. So that was a really odd experience, but I did love it as well. But I think that transition to CEO role, I just, I mean, my non-exec had said to me, you, you can't be the same MD or CEO of a half a million quid company and be that same person for a million pound turnover business and a three million pound turnover business. You're going to have to become somebody different each time. And that has always really resonated with me. I really value that insight because it's so true. You have to change the way that you are. You have to change your skills. You have to change your network, who you're networking with. You have to elevate every single aspect. And you have to actively do that because it's really easy to just sit still in that comfort zone of like, well, we're here now, so I'll just keep networking with the same people and going to the same events and doing this and writing my annual strategy and publishing that in January and everybody goes off and, and sort of adheres to that strategy. So you have to be very diligent, I think, to make sure you're raising your own game all of the time. And I really like that transition from sort of trend forecaster into CEO. I re I've really enjoyed it. There's bits of it. I definitely had skills gaps again around usually the finance stuff. I had to go away and figure that out because I think it was really holding me back. It was holding back my decision making. And there was a real sort of fear factor there of me kind of thinking, oh, I haven't, you know, I failed my maths GCSE twice. I don't really, I don't do maths. And having to sort of remind myself that it's it's not about that it's not about that it's about a certain set of skills being able to read a spreadsheet and read a P&L and all those things they're taught skills and I really enjoyed that sort of move out of the client relations into something that's that's bigger picture and I know my big picture in my behavioral patterns is one of the things that stands out but being able to think ahead for the business I love that and I can really tell that it plays to my strengths I, I start to think about things in my business and ask questions about things 
and my team are really clued up. But if I say to them, I think I can see the industry moving in this way and they go, ah, right, I hadn't seen that. I know that I'm then on to something that I know I'm bringing something to the table that other people can't do in my business. And that's interesting that because that you've applied, you've looked at your behaviours, you know, that big, big picture piece in you, that huge goal orientation, that ability to the high difference change innovation piece in you. And as you've transitioned and changed your role, you have kept the things that align with your biggest strengths. And I think that's the piece that often people miss, that they almost assume that because they do a job at whatever level they're at that plays to their strengths, if they move automatically that next job won't play to their strengths. But the thing is, there's so many things that fit those behaviours or those strengths. You've just got to find the things that align with it. Yeah, definitely. And like you said before about the affiliate streak, I think, you know, I had a behavioural map a few years ago and recently redone it. And actually that affiliate piece has has grown. And I think what I love about the behaviours is it's not saying this is your personality full stop, the end. This is how you're going to be forever. With behaviours, you can tweak them and probably not massively but you can actually make a choice as to how you want to behave and how you want to perform and how you want to connect with people and as I said I'm a sort of self-certified you know I'd, I'd lock myself in a cave if I could but I've had to learn how to connect with people and what it is it wasn't that I didn't enjoy connecting with people I just couldn't figure out a way to do that and be the boss I, d- I didn't understand how those two things could sit together and I think now I understand that I'm, I'm really passionate about bringing young people into the industry. I love working with graduates, students. I love showing people what trend forecasting actually is because it's such a secretive industry. So I've found a way to kind of to cater for that affiliate streak and to work with people in a way that, that suits me. And I think some of that has been around... You know, I, I never used to be able to have honest conversations or difficult conversations. I mean, difficult conversations, I would just bury that and move on and hope it didn't come back and bite me and guess what it always does. So I think, you know, finding some some good skills in in learning how to have difficult conversations gave me the confidence that even when you're talking about tough things, you can still build good good relationships with people and you can still come away feeling like you've stayed true to how you wanted to be such a lovely lesson for people listening to connect with because with the behaviors as you rightly say joe it's not that you can't do it but sometimes when you learn to flex your behaviors it means that you can flex when you need to just because it's not supernatural and easy for you initially sometimes what happens is people just stay away but as you evolve particularly moving into that ceo role it's essential, it's critical to the business that not only can you connect with stakeholders, the board, the staff, the clients, but you've also, as you said, got to elevate and start to mix with people who are going to stimulate you and push you in your growth zone so that you don't stay and stagnate. And, you know, there's there's times where people, certainly that we work with, where when you're at the top of the chain or pretty much at the top of the chain, you're the owner, Sometimes you can find yourself in a bit of a stagnation if you're not careful. And particularly with your behavioural patterns, that wouldn't sit well for you. You know, you need to feel like you're always growing, you're moving, you're evolving, you open the level, open the ante within the business and for yourself. Has there ever been any times in your journey where you felt like this isn't for me or I can't continue with this? Has there ever been any moments where it's really felt overwhelming? 
Yes. <laughs> a few times. I mean, I could probably count them on one hand, but definitely, I mean, at the start of the pandemic, hilariously, I think we were in week two of March, maybe week three. And I said to my non-exec, I think, I think I'm done. I think I'm done. I've had a great ride, really enjoyed building this business, but I don't think I'm cut out for being able to run a business through this kind of event and at that point of course none of us knew how big and impactful that event was going to be I thought it was maybe going to last six in fact I remember saying to the intern see you in sort of six weeks time as if you could predict when it was going to end and even with that in mind even with this idea that it might be a short-term blip in mind at that point I just thought oh I'm just not up for leading a business through a, a difficult time I'd done everything I possibly could to avoid being in that situation throughout my entire career as a business owner I'd made careful decisions we'd always had plenty of cash in the bank you know I'd done everything to build a safe business and the safety aspect for me was what really mattered so I wasn't taking stupid risks I was barely taking any risks at all actually if you look back I wasn't even taking the risks I ought to have been taking like that's part of running a business you do have to get comfortable with taking some risks and so I was extremely careful and I could see that this looming disaster was potentially you know, going to obliterate what what I'd built over the years. And I just wasn't up for what that might bring. I was so scared of what that might bring. And this was before the, any government had said there'd be furlough schemes or anything like that. I just thought, I don't think I've got what it takes to to do this. And my non-exec, Ross Golightly, said, it, that's fine if you feel like that, but now is not the time. <laughs> You're not getting yeah, out of this. Yeah, he was like, no, you've, you have not come this far to just sidestep it and fold the whole thing and say, thanks very much, I'm, I'm out. And I think I've done that maybe twice or three times in 15, 16 years, maybe a bit longer. Sometimes it's just an energy drain and I realise I can see that now. And the way that I sort of combat that now is I take a long summer break. I take six weeks off in the summer and I stop and I step aside and I just spend time with the kids and we have a holiday and I don't pressure myself to think about work at all. And... I feel like I really need that now. I feel like I'm at an age now where I need that. I feel like I've worked, I worked before I worked for myself, I worked really, really hard, travelled the world, but it was, you know, I had a suitcase packed permanently, worked seven days a week for many, many years. I worked really, really hard. And I just think that catches up with you at some point and it, it makes you think about where your life balance actually is. And I've got two kids who need to be cared for and looked after through the summer and I need to be off with them. But it's really about that sort of, stepping away from the business so that I, I'm confident I'm going to have enough energy the rest of the year through. And when I hit back down in September, I'm focused on the right things. I'm full of energy. This also comes down to network and going to good events, speaking to people who lift you up and can kind of help you connect in with that positivity because it's sometimes really, really difficult. Mm -hmm. So those things are really important to to make sure you don't get into that rut and into that point of like, I just want to give up. But having a complete break from it for me is, was the, the key. How easy was it for you to give yourself permission to do that? Because I remember, I remember us having conversations a number of years ago around this struggle between perception of what pe you worrying about what people would think about you taking that kind of time there's probably lots of people listening thinking I wish I could take six weeks off but I know that was like you say you work very very hard but also the decision to be able to give yourself that permission how easy was that for you well I think that's 
I don't think that's something that you just kind of get over and park. You know, I, I've definitely had people say to me quite recently, like, oh, it must be nice, yeah. you know, that you can have that time off. And I think as long as you're comfortable in yourself, like I know I deserve it. I know I've worked really hard and I know that I'm working in a business that I can't leave. You know, I've got 25 staff members. There's a lot of mortgages, a lot of households, a lot of families. And I can't go and get another job. Uh, well, I could, but I, I, it's not it's not really what I want to do. So in order that I stay, I mean, if I wasn't working for myself, there's no way I would have stayed in a role for 15 years. Because as you've said, my behavioural patterns, I would have changed around. I would have wanted to do other things. So I, I take that really seriously, that if I'm going to stick around and be motivated and be a good boss and be the kind of boss that everybody needs, I will need to take that time out. And as a business owner, sometimes it's one of the few luxuries you get. I know that sounds a little bit first world problems, but... You work really, really hard. You never quite switch off from it. You're thinking about it all the time. And it's the reason you get into it is for those kind of rewards. You have to make sure you actually go and get them because it's, I speak to so many business owners that don't reap any of the rewards of owning a business. They might as well go and work for somebody else and have a really awful boss because they're being that awful boss to themselves. You've got to spell out what it means to you, I think, to what things are really important to you and, and that time out for me is really important so you're right Sarah like years ago I probably would have said I'm a bit worried as to what people in my business will say if I take that time out it, they may or may not say that but I'm really clear to them about why I take that time out I also have a lot of people in my business that are women who've got children that need to be cared for through the summer holidays and I also don't see that it's my personal privilege to take that time out although we can't all take six weeks out I'll certainly let them flex their time so they can manage their childcare through the summer holidays so I try and do everything that I can to afford them the same time back at the times where it really matters and I think you do that with the team and you're a great role model for that and you know I've seen some of your team jetting off to different places and working from different places but I think that that piece is a great lesson for business owners because we hear that a lot as well we sort of hear that piece I mean I've just been in the states for a month and you know you often get that oh that must be nice and it's like yeah but a you don't see all the hard work that goes around it to make that happen because these things don't just happen you know Sarah and I had a goal this year that we would both be able to take time out of the business at the same time and that was the first year that that happened but it has to be a goal, doesn't it? It has to be purposeful. It has to be, we did a podcast with Laura Morgan and we talked a lot around, she went into her business with a life plan before she had a business plan. And it was, what is the plan for my life? And how does my business sustain that plan? So I think that's a really lovely illustration of that. I think probably most people have the life plan before they have the business plan, but working in your own business starting up your own business is so brutal Derails that you everything. park it yeah, very early on and think oh maybe I was completely yeah. unrealistic about what I was actually going to get here yeah. and it just takes a lot of years to get there and Sarah to your point before about which critical hires did I make I grew people in the business who knew how I wanted things done from a trend forecasting perspective and then when we got to a stage where we could hire the best people in the business that is absolutely what we've we've gone and done and you know some of those people are based in the northeast some of them are not they're based all over the country in, in different countries as well so when you are confident about the people that you're hiring and you're in a position to hire the best it naturally does build confidence and you know we're really lucky we don't have issues with team members not performing or not being productive or whatever it might be they are absolutely switched on, completely engaged. You know, 100% of the team are behind where we're trying to get to as a business. 
so you you don't mind somebody flexing their hours in the summer holidays because you know they've probably already over delivered before you get to July in the first place. Can I just say I don't think that's luck. I think yeah. there's an awful lot that's you maybe being a little bit modest. I think there's an awful lot around creating the right culture, nurturing that engagement, doing the the engagement days with the team and actually having the infrastructure for people to be able to perform the operational yeah. procedures that you've got in place. It's not luck that that's happened. I would say there's been a lot of blood, sweat and tears potentially yeah. gone into that. So yeah. it's just important because sometimes when you when you achieve something like that and lots of business owners do this, we hear it a lot where they'll say, yeah, you know, we're lucky or, you know, we had this opportunity and it just came out. Sometimes it's because you actually put the effort in and you get the rewards at the end of that. You're, you you know? are right. And I can remember a time where I, I believed that I couldn't create a business like that. And I believed that it was actually a business owner's right to, you know, I've obviously got two kids. It was it was my right as a business owner. I decided to set up on my own. So I got the privilege of being able to you know, go and do the school run every day or be off in the summer holidays. And I thought, well, that's just the way that it is. It was what I saw out in the world. That's how other women were running their businesses, but they weren't affording any of those luxuries to, they're not luxuries, are they really, but to to the staff that worked for them. And that never sat well with me, but I couldn't see a good model for how other people had done it. And I wasn't always getting that right. There was definitely a time where I mean, not that I allowed myself any great extra time when I had both my kids. My eldest son, I think I was off for about eight weeks when I had him and had to go straight back to work. That wasn't ideal for me. I would have liked to have had a lot longer. And I remember, you know, not being able to hire somebody back part time when she'd had a baby and she'd previously worked full time because the role just was so demanding. I couldn't figure out how to get that role done in three days a week. And I didn't have the money to hire a second person to backfill the time that she wasn't going to be there. It just, I didn't have the skill set to develop that yet. And you need to be a certain size to be able to accommodate some of those things. So when we were 10 or 12 people, we had to behave in a way that was very different. And then as soon as we've got big enough to say, well, actually, you guys could job share. And actually, we need to hire someone from London. And this person can only do two days a week, but they're the best at that job. We've built that into the culture. But that was as a result of some really horrible conversations around, I don't know how to get this person back to work. They've had a baby and I don't know how to get that they're asking for less hours and we can't get that job done on any less hours and we, we were hiring people straight into our head office in Newcastle they had to be bums on seats in Newcastle there aren't that many trend forecasters hanging around in Newcastle so it was really difficult to hire in the first place let alone hire somebody who could come in and do part-time work so that has all been thrown into the air it's a thing I'm grateful for with regards to the pandemic we've had to hire people from outside the region and it's been an absolute game changer for us and I think that's a really good example of where being intentional about your culture you know a lot of people just let it happen they let their values happen they let their culture happen but actually if you've got a goal yes you won't be able to fulfill that 100% on day one but actually what you described there is your goal of providing this way more flexible inclusive workforce and actually working gradually towards that as the business grew you were able to put more of those things in place we could probably sit here and talk all day. So I'm going to ask you one final question. What is one thing that you wish you had known earlier in your journey? Wow. I mean, so much. But it would it would be around managing people. It would be around managing people. I just wish I'd known. I didn't know that was a skill set when I set out. I thought you were either the kind of person that could manage people and that enjoyed being around people 
and that could have difficult conversations when they arose or you weren't and I just wasn't and at the end that's how I thought it was nobody had ever said to me these are coachable skills that you can learn and I mean that's such an eye-opener I could have gone through my entire career not knowing that and the business would have stagnated and I would have stagnated as a result it would have just been a bit of a dead end really so I think I wish I'd known earlier on, like even before I worked for myself, I wish I'd known when I was in a, I would have been probably a much better employee. I probably would have been more tolerable as a colleague, I think, if I'd known that like people's skills were teachable. It's just so important and it, you can't dodge it, you can't avoid it, but it's, it's learnable. There's tons of courses, tons of conversations you can have that can teach you how to, how to face those challenging moments. And when you're running a business, they will come up. They will come up. There are always difficult conversations to be had um, and teachable regardless of your behavioral patterns I think that's a big thing you know we have people come to us and they'll say well like I'm not naturally good at having difficult conversations and they might have a boss who has very direct difficult conversations and they're probably slightly more internal and actually there's ways to have difficult conversations through asking more questions versus being more direct you don't have to morph yourself into a different behavioural type to be able to do some of those management exercises. You've just got to do them in a way that feels true to you. Yeah, I think so. I think it's, um, I mean, even just being able to not take yourself on that emotional roller coaster with everything that happens in the business, I think is so critical. You know, I remember a few times in the past where I've had like a Friday night, five o'clock text message or email saying, can we have a conversation 9am Monday? <laughs> and it's the worst thing you can ever receive as a boss, isn't it? And people think that they're getting it off their plate before the weekend and giving you a heads up for Monday morning. But of course, you worry all weekend and, you know, somebody's either pregnant, they're leaving the business, something's happened and you then worry all weekend. And I think making sure that you don't go on an emotional roller coaster with some of those type of activities and being really clear with your team about what is and isn't acceptable in terms of communication is yeah. really important. But being able to separate out, you know, opening a big invoice and thinking, oh, that's got to be paid this month with then being able to go away for the weekend and relax with your kids. You know, you have to try yeah. really hard to pull those two things apart. Otherwise, they will overlap all of the way. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for joining us. We've loved talking to you. It's my pleasure. Thanks, thank Joel. you. Thank you. <laughs> so let's look at some key takeaways from the episode with Joel. So the first one is we talked about being a small business and actually doing an element of trend forecasting naturally, that when you're thinking about new products and services that you bring to market, you will likely already be doing some of this. But Joe gave a really lovely tip around thinking about the surrounding influences in your market. So instead of just thinking about where your direct competitors might be, thinking about that market as a whole and pushing that out one to two years to actually think about where some of the other influences might come in that might impact your product or service. The second tip was really around the fact that as you grow, and Jo talked about her transition into the CEO role, that every level is going to require a slightly different version of you. And that you should be constantly thinking about how you're raising your game. How are you elevating? How are you looking at what the people around you are doing? How are you learning? How are you educating yourself? And how are you equipping yourself for that next level that you're going to? And lastly, we talked about how even if behaviours aren't natural to you. So for example, Jo talked about that people piece for her and that 
managing people was a never in her plan and isn't actually aligned with some of the behaviours that she had a couple of years ago. That if you really work on those behaviours and consciously flex them, you can actually find a way to do that that feels more natural to you and is just as effective. Thank you for choosing to listen to the Misbehave podcast. Hit the subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes.